You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today we're welcoming back a former guest of the podcast, uh, Professor Elisa Samarjian. She's an associate professor in the Department of History at Whitman College. Elise, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be talking with you. Uh, so on the last episode, you talked about uh, bathhouses in Aleppo and some of the anxieties over... Um, communal boundaries that were playing out in uh, those bathhouses uh, regarding specifically the contact of female bodies. Uh, for those who want to check out that podcast, go to our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, and you can listen to Elisa's interview about that subject. Uh, today's subject kind of fits in nicely with that research you did, and this is uh, some of your ongoing research, I guess, on uh, early modern Aleppo, a topic you've worked a lot on. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, conversion, the subject of conversion, uh, specifically gendered politics of conversion. Conversion is also an uh, area where we see a lot of anxiety about the crossing of boundaries because it involves the crossing of a really major boundary. Uh, someone's religious identification in the early modern period this is very important. Still is today. And so you've, you've looked at the issue of conversion through the lens of uh, Armenian community of Aleppo. Yes. So this was a book project that I was working on before the war started in Syria, and it was going to be so really, the, the idea was to produce a, a social history of the Armenian community in Aleppo, um, mostly because the scholarship has been yeah. so heavily weighted on um, the subject of the Armenian genocide and also sort of modern questions. So, Which um, are important as well. They're, all, they're also important, but we have this uh, black hole in terms of the scholarship that I wanted to try to fill. And the reason why I was attracted to it was because doing the research for off the straight path, I started to notice the appearance of Armenians all over the Sharia courts, and they were doing really strange things. Um, they were sometimes contracting their marriages there. They were mm-hmm. um, uh, they were getting divorces, triple divorces or single divorces in the Sharia court, which I knew they couldn't do as easily in the Armenian church. Sure. And so it raised all these questions about how Armenians were using the courts. And then they were doing sort of everyday transactions, but also transactions that told us a lot about uh-huh. Economic life, for example, um, business transactions and um, long long distance trade. Um, you could learn a lot about Armenians using the Sharia court records, sure. and those are details that are hard to find in other places. So, mm-hmm. well, yeah, in my very limited contact with court records uh, in the Adana region, there's there's a lot of Christians in those court records, and they're they're there for all sorts of reasons, um, not just conversion, as we're going to talk about today, but many other reasons as well. I mean, you made an important point here about uh, Armenians in Aleppo. Uh, when people think about the Armenian community of Aleppo, what they think of is precisely those who did survive genocide, because that's one of the major places where Armenians tended to end up after that you know, expulsion process and whatnot, uh, and sort of the remaking of Aleppo under the French. During the 20th century, Armenians played a, a huge role in that, and like played a role in reshaping the Syrian society in Aleppo. And we won't get into debates about boundaries. Is Aleppo and Anatolia, is Aleppo in Syria? It's clearly in Syria today. It's in greater mm-hmm. Syria, whatever, the Levant. But it is interesting to find this uh, that there is this sizable Armenian community 
in Aleppo even before that period, during the early modern period. Before we get into the subject of conversion, could you kind of give us a picture of uh, the Armenian community in early modern Aleppo? Yeah, um, so I've looked at some, even even in the Tapu records, we start to see more and more Armenians coming in in the 16th century. They're settling all over the city, but they really start to concentrate in Jde de Quarter, which is an emerging Christian quarter in the 16th century. A lot of the foundations of Jde de Quarter are actually from the Byzantine period. And what we do see is new construction um, under the late Mamluks um, in the 15th century, and then more expansion and construction in the 16th century. And, and, and it's amazing to see a Christian quarter that is really developing, expanding in, in the first few decades of Ottoman rule. And Armenians are, are, are coming in larger numbers. Now, I mean, we're not talking about a huge, uh-huh. you know, we're not talking about thousands of people. I mean, even in the early 17th century, the estimates were that we're talking about 1,500 mm-hmm. people, but it's still enough that we see a steady trickle of Armenians coming. And the 17th century is really uh, what Avadis Sanjian has called a golden age for Armenians in, seven, in 17th century Aleppo, where we see new institutions being built. And they're coming for two major reasons, to uh, avoid war, which there are different kinds of there's a war between the Ottomans and the Safavids. Yeah. And then on, this, on the other hand, we have um, other kinds of war or conflict which the, with the Jalali revolts. Oh, yeah. And then we also have crop failures. I, I haven't seen specific references to those, but those references are found in Sam White's book. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and of course, there's, there's still much work to be done on the way in which the Little Ice Age affected um, you know, Armenians. Right, in but you have this migrated. agrarian crisis uh, where... Christian villagers are going to the city, right? as you're saying. Uh, but, I mean, Aleppo's also growing as a mercantile center. Are they coming for business? For trade. I They're mean, coming for think. trade. Um, and so the thing, the link between the um, Jolfin Armenians or um, the, I mean, the Jolfin Armenians that are coming from um, near, nearby or in the area of Safavid Empire, they're coming yeah. for the purpose of trade and they're bringing a lot of money and capital. From Asfahan, right? Um, there be even pre Asfahan. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's even pre Asfahan, and actually, Sabu Aslanian's work has done yeah. a lot of good foundation for that to show us that Aleppo was already um, a center for Jolfan trade mm-hmm. even before um, the destruction of Jolfa. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, right now, on the date 1604 to 1605 is when um, that happens, and it basically destroys the homeland of those merchants so they have to migrate yeah. elsewhere and they go everywhere and uh, um, yeah. Sebu Aslanian has basically been on their trail yeah. and keeps producing more and more work you know, on it's fascinating work. You, you can find that you, you guys who are listening can find that on our webpage you can find the, 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 the link to that book um, these are different Armenian communities essentially though the, the peasants you're talking about in Anatolia northern Syria uh, are from a different ecclesiastical community than the ones from Jolfa, right? Am I wrong in that? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it, that should be the case, but the Jolfa and Armenians who, who end up settling down in Aleppo, um, you know, they're, they will be within the, um, the Holy Sea of Cease, ah. and they're actually going to support the Holy Sea of Cease, and they're going to take it over, and the Holy Sea, sea will be controlled by the Jolfans for, for quite a while. Um, this community is going to start to wane in the 18th century, Okay, but, but in the 17th century, um, the even even um, clerics and the ties were, were really strong between the Jolfin Armenian community and um, and the Holy See. 
So they're going to bring a lot of money, and 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 what we're going to see is um, a new kind of development, mm-hmm. expansion of churches, um, hostels, and different kinds of institutions. And they're going to also control the 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 Gumruk in Aleppo, which is oh, where a lot of the good money mm-hmm. is made. And uh, we have two Armenian brothers who control the Gumruk in the early 17th mm-hmm. century, and so, both so of during- them get executed. But anyway, they did they. They, oh. while, it, while it lasted, they made a lot of money. <laughs> it's a good run while it lasted, yeah. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, Chris Grayton here talking with Professor Elise Samarjian about her uh, research on uh, the politics of conversion in early modern Aleppo. Uh, that's a forthcoming article, uh, it, or maybe it will have been released by the time this podcast is released in, uh, Jan- in January, and It's going in January, mm-hmm. Jamuse. And so you can check out that article for the full details on this subject. Moving into the topic of conversion... Uh, I mean, when we think uh, conversion is a, is a very fruitful uh, field of study for historians for a lot of reasons, but also um, it's like kind of open territory. We don't necessarily uh, assume that a lot of people were converting, but we do know that people were converting. People were, were mm-hmm. converting specifically between Christianity uh, and Islam during the early modern period for a variety of reasons. And if you go through a court record, you might come across a couple such conversions as you have in your research. So as, as Aleppo is growing and the Armenian community is growing with it, and uh, Armenians are coming from all over and becoming integrated into this emergent society, is conversion something that, that's happening frequently, would you say? You know, I've, I've read now, you know, around 300 years of records. Yeah. And, and no, it's not frequent at all. In fact, in the records. In my, I created a database of yeah. these Armenian cases, and and it's really 22 cases, I believe, that um, we have references to Armenian converts. And so it's not about saying this was a um, phenomenon that happened frequently so much as looking at when it happened, what we learn about identity. Yeah. And um, the reason why it interested me was particularly how it was impacting women or sometimes okay. how women were using it, mm-hmm. how, what, 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 what women were doing at those moments of conversion, whether it was their husband's conversion, how were they reacting to it, how were they using the court and trying to maximize their own benefit if they could, when they could. Um, but also what originally attracted my attention were moments in which women converted and the way in which that really kind of upturned the scales with regard to gender in their families. Mm, okay. So that at least at that particular moment, I hate to quote Seinfeld, like she has hand, but anyway, she had the, (laughs) it's a Seinfeld thing. Anyway. Increasingly um, dated Seinfeld (laughs) reference. (laughs) That's all right. She would momentarily upturn the scales and actually have um, really a small amount of power uh, in the sense that she could immediately access divorce, gain custody of the kids. Okay. Um, and, and, and that, that's really one of the few resources a woman might have in a case like that to actually, um, have advantage over her husband. One of the types of cases I have are these 
burial requests or these yeah. refusals to convert. And those are cases in which women remained Christian in light of the entire family's conversion. Because when a father converted, all of the children would be automatically converted to Islam. And in this case, the wife is saying, you uh. know, I, I want to remain Christian and I want Christian burial rites when I die. But the court record is actually composed by the scribe. And so it's in this pejorative language. She has decided to stay with her infidelity oh. rather than converting to Islam. So it, it's, it, it's pejorative. But at the same time, we do get at least the affirmation that she gets to have her Christian right. burial rites and remain Christian despite her family's conversion. And um, so in I'm the, trying in, to read agency into those kinds of documents. Yeah. So in this case, that comes to the court because uh, a woman is in a family that is ostensibly Muslim because of some patriarchal reason, but she herself is not Muslim or trying to mm-hmm. claim rights for her or for her children mm-hmm. uh, to, to remain as a, uh, as Christian essentially mm-hmm. and yeah. in, in all, in all, in all regards. And I even found a case of a young girl who, who does the same thing. She remains Christian in light of her, her mother's conversion. And so she comes to court and registers that. And was coming to the court part of, registering or affirming this or was this uh, appealing to the court in order to um uh ward off a, like some sort of family pressure or how do we read this when we see this happening why would someone i'm trying to understand why you would have to go to the uh the court to say that you know i'm not turning muslim or i am converting i i don't have any definitive answer to that but what i could say is that um it does a lot to, for example, if, a, if somebody is concerned that their family may bury them in a certain way that they don't yeah. approve of. And it also goes back to what I think I've been finding all along as all of, all of, are all of these unique ways in which the people are, are people are using the court much more as kind of a civic. Yeah, that's what I was um, thinking, civic a institution. Civic institution rather than one when we think of Sharia as being so tied to, relig- to a sort of religious affairs um, that it kind of fits the civic function of the court. And so these are the cases where people are saying, um, no, I want to maintain my rights as a Christian, even though a member of my family or whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, husband, et cetera, is, is Muslim. What about, what about the inverse? What about, or what about when women in particular, I guess, are uh, coming to the court with cases of conversion, stating right. their conversion is Islam? We have some cases of mostly Greek Orthodox and Armenian women mm-hmm. who did this they they received their divorces through conversion and i've always found this fascinating because knowing how difficult it is to get a divorce in the church it sort of to me immediately explained why women would do this and um the church has always had um had a problem with divorces and some of the case the cases i offer from armenian canon law show that even in cases of proof of a husband's death if he's, for example, journeyed abroad and never come back, um, even if there's proof of that death, a woman still has to wait seven years to receive a divorce. And what we know also about this period, and this gets back to the Jolfins and the Armenian community, is that we did have a lot of men who were doing sometimes extremely long-distance trade in the case of the Jolfins, who may oh, yeah. be in Amsterdam, they may be in, in India, um, or uh, in, in, they're doing trade that's actually you know, not very close to Aleppo. It could be in Erzurum. It could be. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if they don't come back, it, it could be very difficult for a woman to 
um, start a new life. And, and so we do have cases where men are gone for 20 years or more. And so wives are sort of stuck in a situation. I was thinking about that context along with the law, the Armenian canon law, uh, and why a woman would strategize to make this move. It's not an easy move because it's going to cut her off from her community, but it's, it's also going to give her other kinds of legal advantages over non-Muslim men that um, at least I want to try to read some agency into that move. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about, it's divorce, but it's not divorce necessarily in that two people living together in a domestic space. And she says, I want to have a divorce, so I'm going to become Muslim and get out of here. It's more like to get out of the the larger obligations that the church puts on women to remain in marriages that are de facto not marriages? Or, I mean, I there mean, could be a case in which they're living together and she wants a divorce and she could make this move. There are cases in which the men are gone. There are some cases in which um, the men are absent and the woman makes this move, but there are others in which the men are, are around. It could yeah. be made at any time. Okay. But the move is definitely one that I see as a, a bit of a jab against um, the the patriarchal institution that is the Armenian church mm-hmm. in the way that it it really made it almost impossible for women to get divorce yeah. or an annulment. All right, welcome back. We're talking with Professor Elise Samarjian again about her uh, research on the gendered politics of conversion in Aleppo. Uh, We've talked a lot about the gender aspects, how women could use conversion as a means to secure certain legal rights via the Ottoman state that they couldn't get through uh, the church structure, uh, specifically divorce, for example. Um, So the gender's there. I want to ask about the politics of it. Why is this something political, or in what cases do you see conversion being uh, an issue that, you know, as expressed in the court records, that has uh, political uh, connotations? Presumably, converting from one religion to another could be a political stance, but maybe you could give an example of what that was in practice. Yeah, I mean, the, there were some concrete. I mean, we can say politics within families kind of in a light way, but there's also the politics of the empire, the fact that conversion, I mean, I guess you could say for a male or a female, gives them a certain political advantage over mm-hmm. others and kind of puts them a rung above um, others um, in this sense. You know, a, a Muslim woman would have more status than a non-Muslim man. So if a Armenian woman converts mm-hmm. to Islam, she's able to change her position in the social hierarchy but then there's the real politics which is like the ottoman politics um and the fact that uh in in one particular case there's an armenian man who is listed uh, there's a series of documents his wife is conducting some commercial deals buying buying real estate in aleppo and in the first mention of his name his name is markar the tailor and uh by the second and third record we actually start to see references to him as Suleiman Bashe. Um, and Suleiman Bashe would mean that he had become a Janissary. And so mm. from one mention of him to the other in a span of three months, his identity transformed from being an Armenian Christian tailor, which is, I mean, again, noble profession, but not yeah. a high status profession to becoming a Janissary. And so he's able to attain this political position 
and economic position because we know also Janissaries were able to be, you know, become very powerful yeah. economically in a span of three months. And so that's, that's part of so the politics of conversion. And I know a lot of work has been done on male converts, but putting that in conversation with um, what's happening with women to the best of our ability, realizing our limitations, is part of what I wanted to do with this preliminary work. So we see the in in these instances the court is a sort of space for adjudication or the state provides a way of uh, recording and legitimizing one's decision to or one's decision to have changed their religion or to not change their religion. Uh, so how does this question of conversion play into the politics itself of Aleppo? How? Uh, the Armenian uh, ecclesiastical structure uh, is involved in the lives of individuals. Um, we know that the uh, the Catholic set of, of Cis is very powerful in the lives of Armenians in Aleppo during this time. Is there a tension there as well? Do we see uh, conversion uh, sort of playing a political role in the lives of Armenians in that regard? That changing that converting to Islam would allow them to uh, sort of escape the political structure that is this church? I mean, well, from the church's standpoint, and I provide some of this too, where yeah. the church would sort of cut them off. And so in a way, I mean, it, it, it could be very devastating actually yeah. to be removed from one's community in this kind of uh, context in which people were very dependent on their communities and community ties were important. Mm -hmm. They were sort of a safety net um, and, and in many different respects. Um, I wonder, though, if, if it's as rigid as, as the canon law portrays, because what we do have mm -hmm. in one case is a woman who's married to a Muslim who later marries a Christian, right? Okay. So her, her, presumably her husband, who had a convert-sounding name, may have been Armenian and then converted to Islam. Oh. Mm -hmm. He died, and then she came to court marrying a, an, an Armenian. Mm -hmm. And her question was, can I marry a Christian after having been married to a Muslim? And the court said, yes, you can. Um, so she seemed to not know she could do that either, but she contracted her marriage in the, the, the Sharia court, which tells me that she probably wasn't accepted back into the community, that mm -hmm. perhaps it was ah. difficult um, to be accepted by the church um, to be fully accepted back into the community run by the church, but at least was maybe um, accepted by her yeah. husband or perhaps some individuals. We can't always um, get to that kind of answer mm -hmm. from the court records, but there's a suggestion that perhaps the rules were not as rigid as Armenian canon law portrayed. Oh, okay. So in this new article, Dr. Samarjian, you have a lot of great stories that challenge our understanding of, of social boundaries, essentially, during the early modern period, but also help us better understand what was the role of, of the court in the daily life of individuals living in a city like Aleppo. You know, this is a very understudied topic, thinking about the lives of Armenians during uh, this period. Relatively few people have gone into it, as we, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, what are some of the questions or trajectories that you see? What are some of the areas of inquiry we should look for that are that arise out of this research on conversion in the courts? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do end up having still so many questions more than answers from this work, but I think it's because we have so much left to do in thinking about what identity looked like in the early modern period. Um, the, you know, what, what did it mean to be, for example, an Armenian or a Greek Orthodox Christian in this period of time? Um, these Armenians of Aleppo, they have names that are not ethnically Armenian. Um, there are even travel accounts that uh, have argued that they didn't speak Armenian to each other in the streets. Um, and so the idea in which we, we frame identity today needs to really mm -hmm. be un, undone. And a lot of that work needs to be done, I think, by examining the early modern period. Also, uh, I'm fa I continue to be fascinated by hybridized families or uh, even imagining what it might be like to be in a household in which one parent is Christian and the other mm -hmm. is Muslim and um, what that kind of lived experience would look like for um, children, for families. Yeah. And, and so I think the more we dig, we might find um, more pieces of the puzzle to fill this in and, and explain more of what it looked like. And then I think finally too, that the case in particular of the woman who, marries a Christian after having been a Muslim, being married to a Muslim, I, I think that also that kind of sensibility is interesting because um, it suggests, again, that the, the boundaries between communities weren't as hard as we might imagine and yeah. that there might be a little more flexibility or agility between identities and boundaries. Well, it's certainly relevant for when we look at the late 19th century and, of course, you know, the Armenian genocide and what happens after, when we have all these stories of mass conversions by, by villages or families or, or people, you know, becoming uh, part of uh, Muslim families, women marrying also forced conversion, lots of stories like this, putting them in the context of uh, these earlier understandings of boundaries, how they can be transgressed, how you can move back and forth uh, is certainly very important. Well, thanks for talking to us again on the podcast. It's Thank a pleasure. you. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to reading uh, subsequent research as well on these subjects. Uh, for those who are listening and want to find out more, we invite you to our website where you'll find a bibliography for this podcast. It's a great place to leave your comments and questions. We've got a lot of other episodes in our series on historicized identity where we tackle these issues of uh, you know, Christians caught in between uh, different political and, and social blocks. So we invite you to listen to some of those. Um, we also want to invite you to Facebook where you can um, debate with uh, your friends who are also fans of Ottoman history, over 20,000 uh, followers on that page. And that's where you can keep track of what's, what's new on Ottoman history podcast and the subsequent episodes. I want to thank you all for listening and invite you to join in next time. And until then, take care. Yeah.